What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to another Serious Angler podcast, powered by our friends over at X2 Power Batteries. As always, I'm your host, Bailey Egbert, and joined with me is the captain, Mr. Andy Full. What's going on, What's buddy? Up? Glad you're live. Glad you're with us. Yeah, yeah. Glad I'm here as well. Uh, had a scary moment yesterday. That was quite crazy. I feel like it was karma, honestly. So, because we I'm glad you have a, a new set of pants on. Yes, we did. Amanda had to bring me a new set of pants last night. We'll just start off with that. So, <laughs> paint a horrible picture in their brain. <laughs> yeah. So, epic foreshadowing. I'll start with the end of the story. I had to call my wife in a grog and have her bring me a new pair of pants because the nurse thought I peed myself. <laughs> it's such a horrible way to start it, but such a great way to start this story. So welcome yeah. back to another episode. We're going to yes. go hop right into Andy's epic Monday. Yes. The Monday of all Mondays, basically. It was. So, so hit it, hit it virtually, virtually what's going on here with the full household is we're getting ready to buy a house. So in the morning, I did a bunch of painting in my house. All is fine. And this is probably where like my, the epic start to the day started, right? Like I got brain fog from paint fumes so i decided to go steelhead fishing meet up with my buddy john on the creek and we keep a steelhead because i need eggs for client trips so i'm sitting there cutting and i was like i'm gonna fillet this fish when i got home for my mother-in-law and give her some nice steelhead fillets because it was bright orange like beautiful looking meat and as i back slice up the back side of the fish to go around like the ribs all of a sudden i was like oh there's a lot of blood like never realized what happened. I pulled my hand out and it's just like dripping. I was like, oh, I might have cut my knuckle with the flay knife. I just sharpened it. So hour goes by, still bleeding. I bled through like three band-aids, couple gauze pads. And I'm like, all right, I probably should go to a media care because I haven't had a tetanus shot in like 12 years. So went and got my tetanus shot. All is good. The lady starts stabbing my finger with lidocaine where I cut the cut like a inch, eh, maybe like a centimeter and a half inch gash in my knuckle right on the part where it bends. So it's constantly going to stay open. And about the eighth shot of lidocaine, I remember sitting there and telling her I was like extremely hungry because it's like three hours after dinner time, hiked a bunch, went fishing, super dehydrated. And um, she's like, okay. I was like, oh, I feel lightheaded. And literally out like a light, fell backwards. She caught me. And this is where the peed myself story comes in. There was a bottle of saline, saline solution on the cart that like flew somehow and literally landed on me. And it went all over the room, all over the floor. So I had to call my wife and be like, hey, babe, I just fainted from lidocaine. So I during getting my stitches, which I ultimately ended up not getting any stitches. And um, she had to come there and bring me pants. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> I'm still sick of the story that you pissed yourself. And that's what you're, that's what you're, your cover up. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I mean, I'll go grab the pants now. I know right where they are. <laughs> <Top P. laughs> yeah. yeah, it was wild. Dude, nuts. I, I, I still remember you. So you texted me like, Oh, need stitches. And like, I thought you were joking at first, but like you showed it was actually a pretty deep cut. Yeah. And then I think it's maybe an hour later. You're like, well, I just passed out. <laughs> I'm like, what? Yeah, I've never yeah. like any shot in my life. I've had lidocaine. I've had stitches before and I've never fainted. And I'm accrediting it to just being like uber hungry and dehydrated because it's just like the mother load of nervous system shock from the tetanus shot and lidocaine. And it also doesn't help that the cut I have is right next to a tendon and a major artery in your index finger. It's like literally a millimeter away. So I think maybe quite maybe the lidocaine like hit the artery when she put it in and it like shocked my system that's my best cuss yeah just crushed me 
<laughs> crushed me. <laughs> I mean, it's like similar to, I mean, for anybody that drinks alcohol, I mean, yeah. when you haven't eaten anything, you haven't drinking any water, that yeah. type of deal, like Just crush you. Yeah, it was fun. You feel it a little bit quicker when you have nothing in your stomach. I mean, it's the same kind of thing, but yeah, I'm glad, glad you're alive. Glad you yes, did yourself, too. even yeah. though I'm going to tell everybody you did. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I'm laughing about it. I don't care. Like I, like I literally texted like five different people. I was like, "Well, I may have peed myself." <laughs> See, that's better. I wish you texted me that that you didn't. That you might have pissed yourself. Not that you passed out because that would have been funnier. But I would have been as like worried for you. Yeah, it, it's all good. We're here and we're alive and good. And also, the crabby voice. Like I was at the Bills game on Sunday, screaming my head off. So it was a good start to the week, and then. A really cruddy Monday, but we're back. So we're good. Ready to rock. Heck, heck, yeah. yeah. It's going to be not to get in the football conversation because we talk about it way too much on this fishing show, but this weekend is going to be an exciting weekend of football games. And I will leave it at that yeah. because we have a really cool guest today. One that we have had on probably, I think it was about almost exactly a month ago. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Stephen Barden, fisheries biologist coming on. It was a really fun show the last time picking his brain. And we're going to do the exact same thing tonight. And if you guys have questions, you're curious about something about bass behavior, conservation, anything that has to do with bass or fish in general, how they behave, et cetera, feel free to throw it in the comments and uh, we will ask Steve your question. Uh, but really fast, before we get Steve on here, one thing I want to say, if you notice, rocking some Serious Angler merch right now, I got a Serious Angler hoodie on. If you guys want to get yourself any Serious Angler merch or Lure Lab, Business with Bass Boat, et cetera, uh, the link down in the description of the show notes, MP3 or YouTube, you guys can head to the website. We have our whole lineup of apparel there. So check it out. And uh, however, if you have any questions, that type, type of deal. But Andy, I think without further ado, let's get, get a on. Mr. Stephen Barton. What's going on, man? Hey, Bailey. Hey, Captain P Pants. How are y'all? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Never going to let this down. Jeez. <laughs> yeah, I changed you my phone already. I got it, buddy. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> you ever seen uh, Billy Madison? Pee in your pants is the coolest. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's of course one. we've seen Billy Madison. <laughs> hey, I'm just making sure America's still America. That's all. Oh, man. <laughs> Another one of those movies that would never be able to be made today. But it's timeless, yeah, classic, and phenomenal. You ain't kidding. I, uh, if you're listening or watching this right now and you've never seen Billy Madison, I demand you to quit listening. And go watch. <laughs> Quit so listening. <laughs> Quit listening. Leave. Yeah, <laughs> you don't watch it anymore. I approve of that message. Oh man, <laughs> you're not ready for Steve's knowledge until you've watched Billy Madison. <laughs> well, dude, what? Uh, you know, it's probably been a month, maybe a month and a half since we got you on here the first time. But what's uh, what have we missed in the the month that we haven't had you on the show? No, oh, so much already. Um, well. For anybody who doesn't know me, right, I should probably introduce myself. I'm Stephen Barden, fisheries biologist here in the state of Texas. I own a private lake management company, and I'm also the uh, co-director of the Major League Fishing Fisheries Management Division. So my private lake management company, we work on private waters, fisheries management division. Uh, we handle the conservation efforts for Major League Fishing. So in in kind of the months or the month that uh, that I've been gone, guys, um, let's see, I joined or was appointed to the Texas Freshwater Fishing Advisory Committee. Um, I'm also a member of the Texas Freshwater Fishing Hall of Fame Committee, 
and we just announced this week that we're going to induct Wally Marshall into the into the Hall of Fame for Texas. And so I've got a couple of really cool things going on there. Um, and you know, it's it's business as usual. It's January in Texas, and for some reason, it's 80 degrees, and we're already electrofishing and starting kind of spring sampling, uh, working on private lakes there. And then for Major League Fishing, we're gearing up. We start in a month. Uh, we've got Okeechobee for the Invitationals and then the uh, Kissimmee Chain, the Bass Pro Tour. So I'll be in Florida. Um, I actually leave for Florida in about two weeks, and I'll be there for a while. Um, we've got some cool research we're going to do with the state of Florida while I'm there. Uh, I can tell you all a little bit about that project. And then, of course, right after that, we're going to Redcrest, and we've got a lot of things we're planning to do with the state of North Carolina uh, on the habitat side, on the fish stocking side with some F1 stocking. So <laughs> Bailey, we got a lot going on, brother. Uh, F1. Yeah, I'm going to say, I think I'm going to see you a lot for the next two months. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I'm going to be in Florida the whole next month too. I would, if there's any way I can lend a hand, I'd love to oversee some of that stuff. That would be super cool. Um, are you bringing a boat or a kayak? A kayak. <laughs> well, so let me tell you about the project we're readers. doing. There you go. No, so the, the project we're doing uh, with Florida, it's, it's a collaboration and it's, it's voluntary for our anglers. Uh, during the off days of the Bass Pro Tour, whoever's not competing uh, will have an opportunity to come join us on Lake Apopka. And Lake Apopka is a smaller reservoir. And what Florida's doing right now is they're electrofishing and they are installing radio transmitters in fish that are like over eight pounds. And they've also got some retired brood stock from their hatcheries. And they're doing the same thing and releasing those into a popka. And they're going to track those fish for the next month and learn where they go. And then what we're going to do with the Major League Fishing Pros is we're going to hand them the last known location of those fish. And see if we can target and capture those fish efficiently um, and compare recapturing these larger size fish for hatchery raised fish versus natural fish uh, using, you know, all the technologies that our anglers have right now. So it'll be a really cool little research. It'll last a couple of days. I'm sure that several of the guys are going to make their own content around it. Uh, we've got some really cool B-roll that's being shot of the process, the surgery to install a radio transmitter to fish. And then uh, Florida's going to be on site. And so they're going to jump in some of the guys' boats and if they can't catch one, then they're going to locate that fish and say, like, throw there. There is the fish and see, see what we can do. Oh, that's, oh, dude, that's pretty cool. So we could put you on a boat, Bailey. Hey, I'm game. You just tell me when and where I'm there. Hey, bring a camera. You can film it. It can, it can be right here on Serious Angler. Yeah, Everybody can definitely, see it. We can make that happen. We'll, we'll talk after the show about some logistics. But it's and somebody actually just commented. I was actually going to bring this up. Uh, Bass Fishing HQ, a buddy of ours, Ty Berger, mm -hmm. just posted a video online tonight of a study that they, they did exactly what you're kind of what you're talking about in Toledo Bend. I believe it's mm -hmm. it's videos that have already been posted um, on YouTube, but essentially they did the same thing at Toledo Bend with fish. And he he posted mm -hmm. how like the fish movement type of deal, and I was absolutely entranced by that. And they, they showed how they would electro. You said electroshock. Is that what it is? Yeah, electrofish. Uh, using electricity to temporarily stun a fish through a process called galvanotaxis. So that is when electricity, when electricity goes through a fish, it will constrict the muscles if 
the water has conductivity to allow the electricity to go through and the electricity is put in at the right frequency, amperage, and voltage, it will temporarily stun that fish. If not, it will engage the muscles and make the fish swim away. So it's a, it's a science and kind of an art at the same time. It's the same technique you've heard of like crank, cranking a telephone. Well, whenever you used to crank those old telephones, it would put out a DC voltage just at the right amperage to uh, actually create galvanotaxis in catfish species. Uh, we use it more for, for scaled fish at this point, uh, different voltage range, frequencies, ranges, but that's uh, on my private sector job. That's what I do uh, probably, I would guess, I don't know, 150 days out of the year. I sit on an electrofishing boat, we collect data, um, and then look at population trends. But yeah, so that video of Toledo Bend, they, they did the same process. They did it at Sam Rayburn. Uh, they've done it at Lake Fork this year. So Parks and Wildlife, Texas Parks and Wildlife has, has been really engaged in this. Um, <clears throat> Texas Parks and Wildlife is wild capturing fish. And so the, the big difference is Florida is going to take broodstock, which means um, if you're real, uh, you know, paying a lot of attention, that means that Florida is about to retire a bunch of broodstock and stock them in various reservoirs. And what they're looking at is, will these fish be catchable? Will they integrate into the system and, and be as catchable? That's... I'm trying to process all the information I just downloaded. <laughs> but it's super cool because I, I was watching that video earlier and it had me exactly thinking like this is actually perfect timing that Ty posted this video because now I'm super curious about electrofishing. But I, I'm curious about like the process from like okay. when you launch the boat to go electrofish, as you call mm -hmm. it, to yeah. getting these fish. Then what do you do once you have them, say, in the live well after they've been electro caught i don't know if you have a term for that and then like to yeah. putting transmitters at them to releasing them what does that whole process look like okay let's i mean let's start at the beginning the first thing you have to do is check conductivity of water because pure water without salts without minerals it doesn't conduct electricity uh so you have to know what your conductivity is and the ability of that water to conduct uh then once you know that you have a unit on the boat called an electro fisher the electro fisher it just has adjustments for all the electric components that you would need. That electricity comes out of the electrofisher through uh, booms and in, into electrodes out in the water. The What you're typically doing with electrofishing is you're putting in the positive side of that electricity out the electrode. The boat acts as the ground or the negative. So how the electricity works is if you have two electrodes, it's going to go out through the water back and if the water has conductivity it's going to come back to the boat and create more like a heart-shaped pattern so any fish that's within that zone uh, at that time could experience galvanotaxis uh, that fish also could be further out of that zone and if so if you have the right frequency the right amperage you actually turn that fish it will nose towards the boat and swim directly to the electricity um, so whenever you can do those things, you can bring the fish up very efficiently. Um, electro fishing typically works 20 to 40 foot, depending on the type of boat and the distance, out and about eight foot deep. So you have some limitations, uh, you know, seasonally on where those fish would be located. I can't go out in 40 foot of water and electro fish efficiently. I have to have those fish on the shoreline or near the shoreline. Uh, also, there are any physical items, so like vegetation. Vegetation, electricity will can't really go through it efficiently, so it's going to go around it. Um, 
there's also things like color and clarity of the water that would affect how quickly you can see the fish once once they're actually stunned. Now, once the fish is stunned, you net the fish, right? So you're putting them in the boat. It can take 20 seconds up to several minutes, four or five minutes for that fish to come back to normal and, and start to swim again. Typically, what we do is we put them all in the in the tank. We run electrofishing for a timed survey. So like we do one hour of continuous electrofishing. That allows us to have a catch per unit effort. I know how many fish I caught in that hour. I can quantify that and then I can compare it to all other fisheries. Most of your parks and wildlife or your parks departments, uh, they do a similar thing, but instead of, you know, you're, you're talking about a large reservoir. So instead of doing one hour of continuous electrofishing, you have stations. So you either do five or 20 minute stations um, and they're randomly picked um, through a random plot generator, basically, so that you get an, an entire snapshot of what the fishery is. And when the fish are in the tank, you're going to ID species first. Uh, then you're going to get links and weights on anything that, that is relevant, right? Um, in the increment like that you use is relevant to the size of the fish. So, for example, you want to be as accurate as possible. If I was going to get the length of a bluegill, um, I could do it in inches, but if I want to be more accurate, I do it in centimeters or most likely millimeters. So I can get the most units of measurement to be accurate. Uh, then I will take that length information, that weight information. We pop it into what's called a relative weight chart. And these, I'm sorry, guys, this is super science class right now. So we pop it into a relative we weight chart. Good, good, good. So the relative weight chart takes the length of the fish and the weight does not calculate girth because there's this weird thing where all fish have a standard weight based on their length that they must weigh uh, to get that length. It, it's a hard way to explain it. But anyways, a relative weight chart gives us a body condition score. So if, for example, uh, the bass was 12 inches long but weighed two pounds, that's a relative weight of like 65. So it's 100% of the weight it should weigh plus 65% overweight. Um, so we calculate those things to look at individual condition of fish. Now, other data points we might collect, um, you may do like what's called gastric lavage, where you pump water into the stomach and cause those fish to regurgitate all their food. That's how we would find out what they're eating. Um, and then that fish could then swim off when we're done. We may do something where we're going to calculate age. Age is mostly calculated with a, a bone called an otolith. Otoliths are located uh, right behind the brain at the back of the skull. So that's kind of a terminal procedure. So you would say, like, I want to know how long it takes to be a 14-inch fish in this reservoir. So you could take this bone out, uh, polish it up, and it has rings like a tree, calcium deposits, um, to where you can actually count how old that fish is. You do enough at each size class, and all of a sudden you can paint this picture on what growth rates are in the fishery. Um, and then, of course, if you're going to do something like add that that tag, that radio tag, then that's a surgery. So that fish has to be sedated. Um, you open the abdomen up, you put the transducer in, uh, you seal the abdomen back up, you make sure that it's working, and then you allow that fish to recover before releasing it. It's a uh, kind of it sounds simple, but there's a lot of mortality in these things uh, because it is a surgery, and you can introduce bacteria this time of year. Our fish, um, you know, our fish are ectothermic. That's a new word for you guys. Ectothermic is kind of what they taught us cold-blooded was, but it's actually to where you can regulate your temperature right above your environment. So 
they can regulate their temperature, but barely. And so with a, with a non-regulated temperature, you have um, kind of a metabolism that's based on your environment, which also means you have an immune system that's based on your environment. So during the winter, you fish have a suppressed immune system, suppressed metabolism. So if they go through the surgery in January, um, it could be really rough on them. They won't recover as quickly. Damn. I'm going to let your brain quit melting for a second, Bailey. Yeah. Look on Bailey's face, man. <laughs> you got to use simple words with Bailey. Yes, no. <laughs> no. Fish, gas. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I- I'm curious when it comes to the electrofishing, mm-hmm. is it one where you kind of just pick an area on the map, go do it, or is it calculated in terms of you'll try to do similar areas to then potentially track over years to time of mm-hmm. if fish populations either shrink, increase, if that makes sense. Right. So if you want pure data and you want it to um, be as comprehensive as possible and give you a snapshot of what the fishery is today, that would be completely random uh, because you don't, you want to eliminate your own bias, bias as an angler or biologist on where you think fish would be. So you'd randomize it to pull those things out. Now, if you're trying to track something very specific or you're trying to target a specific species, then you have to put those biases back in because that's a totally different type of survey. If I want to know the status of a fishery, I need to eliminate bias. But if I want to capture a specific species, size, whatever, I've got to have that bias because I've got to have you know man knowledge into where those fish should be. Okay. We have a really good question here from a yeah, Basser Mike. He says, any idea on how northern largemouth stack up against southern largemouth on the body condition score that you were referring to? Yeah, so they are actually, they're, they're the same number. Um, northern largemouth and southern largemouth have the same number um, because this was created in the 80s. So in the 80s, what they did was a, a biologist went across the entire country and took subsamples of largemouth at the time. We didn't, we didn't, we, it's so hard to explain. We didn't have the genetic analysis mitochondrially of a Florida bass to understand that that's a separate species. So we considered them a subspecies. So whenever they calculated relative weight initially, it was a snapshot across the entire country. Um, Environmentally, there are differences, you know, where you can talk about the body condition of a fish because of the environment. um, But as a species, it's all the same north to south. So if they are 14 inches, then they should weigh 1.1 pound no matter where they're at. That makes sense. Andy, I've been firing off questions. I, I apologize. I can't help myself here, but you got anything on that? Oh, so oh, well, I was thinking about like when you're talking about taking the bone out of the head on a bass yep. right, to, to age them. So there is a, a common theme up here that people talk about how smallmouth are like 20 years old. But I heard a couple of years ago at a fish advisories board meeting that they're finding Great Lakes smallmouth are living shorter lives because of gobies. Mm-hmm. So basically because they're, you know, they're little protein snacks for them. Is there any truth in that? And in order to find that out, would they have to like basically take a study from like the eighties and compare it to now, if they ever did a study back then? Yeah, Andrew, you're, you're exactly right with the latter. Um, they would have to take historic data compared to today data. Um, there's a couple of things going on. You, you know, like I said, your metabolism increases with temperature and 
the last decade, our water temperatures have increased with, uh, you know, some, some warming effects that have been happening. So their metabolism is increasing. Metabolism, you could think about it in heartbeats, right? And the faster your heart's beating because your metabolism's increasing, the shorter your lifespan is. So in the Southern United States, fish live a shorter life than they do in the Northern United States. But their growing season is longer as well. So what ends up happening is our fish grow to a larger size. Uh, you know, it, it just is what it is. Because of some global or some, some warming trends that are happening, what you have now is the fish up north are starting to have increased growth rates. You also add a species like gobies, and all of a sudden their, their growth rates are, are really high. It means their relative weight is really high. The longer your relative weight stays above that 100%, um, it, it's kind of like being obese fish. You know, you have some cholesterol issues, you have cortisol issues, you know, you have all these things that go on. So it does shorten their life. So you, so the theory behind what you said is exactly true. So basically smallmouth are developing gobiitis at like an eight, eight to 10 year old range and just yep. disappearing. And they're That's maxing right. out, they're maxing out their max size sooner than later so basically you did say that they grow faster and die sooner so it kind of in theory is correct awesome so yeah. now that's great i have some invasive species questions i don't know if you want me to ask it now because it's relative to the goby or if you want me to ask it later i have one Get quick question oh, one quick yeah. question here from a, a viewer um, before we switch I'm, I'm game for switch we just have a, a viewer question on the electro fishing it should be quick but uh he's as fowler and friends Asking what depth are you limited to with electrofishing? It's due to your electrodes. Most commonly, it's eight foot deep. You can have longer electrodes that would increase the depth, but to get those fish to come to the surface would take a longer time. So you need the right wind and, and time of year and all those things. Okay. But eight foot. Cool. Take it, Andy. All right. So my invasive species question is. Basically pertaining to gobies, you know, they're all over the place in the Great Lakes. But my question is, how long does it take for all native fish species to adapt and start eating them? I heard it could take multiple spawn cycles of fish to eat them, or are they eating them basically as soon as they come into the lake system, ecosystem that they're showing up in? Well, it's an abundance. It's an abundance question, Andy. Okay. So as your gobies increase in abundance the awareness of the entire population of smallmouth bass would increase. You know, whenever abund the abundance of the gobies is low and they're sparse, it's not a trained, it's not a learned adage. But as they increase in abundance, then they become more of a portion of the food chain um, and eventually become the majority of the food chain. Uh, and as you see right now, you take, you know, a zebra mussel that doesn't really have any natural predators and has an advantage in the environment and then you introduce a predator and all of a sudden, you know, now the gobies have that advantage because they have an abundant food source. And now you introduce another predator, which happened to already be there within the smallmouth bass. And so it's kind of the trickle effect of that whole process. So it's just changing the ecosystem, the way the fish think and feed, basically, as an abundance of things grow. Got it. Yeah, that's exactly right. Anything else additional on that, Andy? Um... Not at this moment. I have a, I have a whole laundry list of questions, so but not on that particular topic. I was just curious on the goby side of things here, because like on Lake Oneida, the gobies have been in there like ten years, 
but there was a major fish kill. This will lead into one of your questions, Bailey. So there was a major fish kill there a couple of years ago, and they don't know why the smallmouth started dying and stuff, and there's a lot of theories around it. But at the time when the fish kill started to like happen, people were starting to realize that there was actually gobies in the lake, and they first attributed it to that. But then there's a lot of other things going on. Now you're seeing less smallmouth, but vastly bigger ones, because that's where I came up with the like two spawn cycle question because they're like it's been two spawn cycles since these fish had that die off but now they know the gobies are there that they can eat so they're like genetically engineered to eat it so yeah now i lost my train of thought (laughs) (sighs) you're doing so good (laughs) (laughs) now i gotta go back to it hold on his brain is he passed out yesterday guys yes i mean uh kind of I don't know. I'll try to tie some of that into an answer. <laughs> Listen, brother. Um, you know, gobies. Gobies originally came to the United States in the '80s, um, and so it took a long time for them to migrate through systems. Um, and a lot of the smallmouth bass death that we have seen over a few years, the fish kills, are starting to now be attributed to largemouth bass virus. Um, gobies should not be a direct carrier of that virus although we know some things like crawfish can carry largemouth bass virus so mm-hmm. it's not unheard of for a forage item to be a carrier uh, more likely it's it's once again a density issue you bring the gobies to an environment they they finally hit that abundance that they're relevant to the food chain that congregates fish fish congregate in a small area transmit viruses much easier and then they die off and it's a sad sad deal um, but the largemouth bass virus um, it's only recently really been identified, like let's say the last five years, in smallmouth bass, and so it's you know it's mutated and and now is living in that species. For people that are watching or listening, that when you say largemouth bass virus, can you quickly mm-hmm. explain what that entails? It's a it's a herpes virus. Um, basically, in 70s and 80s uh, kind of swept across really the 80s was some of the peak across the southern uh, part of the country in the 90s. It, it ravished Fort uh, throughout the 2000s in, in places like Gunnersville. Um, and basically it, it creates inflammation within a lot of the organs um, and eventually causes mortality, especially in larger fish. Unfortunately, um, largemouth bass virus is transmitted by a close contact with other infected fish in the live well of many of bass boats and the live release boats is a real bad vector for that transmission of that virus. Um, subsequent stockings of Florida genetics and just, you know, some natural immunity of that virus has made it to where it, it doesn't cause mortality like it used to across the Southern United States. Gunnersville will have, you know, a fish kill every once in a while. They'll have down years attributed to that virus. Um, but we did see, you know, starting about five years ago, some research into smallmouth bass virus. Major League Fishing helped uh, two years ago in Michigan collect a bunch of fish uh, that had lesions or sores on their sides. Uh, and those were smallmouth with largemouth bass virus. Um, we had a grad student this year looking at Lake Neely Henry and that virus uh, transmission into Alabama bass, which used to be part of the spotted bass family. Um, So Alabama bass may be another species that has that virus, but it's a herpes virus um, that that apparently is jumping from 
from one species of black bass to another. Well, it's got to grow and adapt and survive, right? So, I mean, in theory with viruses, the virus should become weaker over time as it jumps host to survive. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. Um, you know, and any virus that causes mortality, uh, it's kind of not fulfilling its duty. You know, a virus, the smart thing to do is to infect something and not cause mortality because that makes you more transmissible. Um, but there, you know, there's always secondary vectors and, you know, they identified like crawfish as one of those. Um, but it, uh, the live well is, is, you know, really the reason in the 90s that the virus moved so quickly across uh, the southern U.S., that brings up a good point to clean your live wells after tournaments, especially if you have disease sickened fish in them so you don't spread it from fishery to fishery, right? I mean, you should, yeah, you should always clean your live well. Um, you know, several reasons, you know, just basically the maintenance of the pumps um, would be enough for me. But yeah, clean your live well. But, you know, Andy, the hard part with largemouth bass virus, you don't know. You don't know you have a positive fish. And throughout your day of competition, you may um, unfortunately you know, put a fish in the live well and then, you know, have five or six fish run through that live well with that fish as you're culling throughout the day. And so, you know, you have a little transmission there, you go to the weigh-in, uh, you put it in a live release boat, you know, there may be three or 400 fish in that release tank. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's a compounding injury, unfortunately, and it, it's always the larger fish, you know, it's, it's never the small ones. Hmm. It's odd. Yeah, that's how it happens. We have a, a question here from Mr. Higgs. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember you and I talking about this a little bit um, in New Orleans about you were talking, you and Gary were speaking to how you have some bass that grow really fast to like crazy weights. Uh, and yeah. that, this question kind of pertains to that. Uh, <laughs> asking about the size of bass. Mr. Higgs is asking, what is the main factor on a bass becoming a 10 pound fish? Uh, he lives in the Northern Midwest. His big bass around there are four pounds ish. Okay. Yeah. Um, we'll unpack it. There's going to be several factors. The main one, I guess, if I had to pick one, would be temperature. Uh, bass have an optimal growing range between 68 and 78 degrees. So however many days you can have in that window, that's when you can optimize growth. Now, during the optimum growing range, you also need forage. So forage has to be abundant, which means competition has to be lighter. Uh, so you need that as many optimum growing days as possible, plus abundant forage. That's going to start it. And then a lack of competition will help it. And then, you know, you really need that to happen for seven to eight consecutive years to grow to a, what we call a trophy size fish. Um, you know, fish's lifespans are so short, they have to have those optimum days and as many of them as possible in consecutive years. If you have years with high water, low water, um, drought, poor water quality, there's so many things, turbidity, that limits some part of that optimum growing and stops it. Um, competition is another big one. Whenever you have slow growing fish, um, you know, you tend to get more and more of them and then their competition amongst each other for the exact same forage item becomes, becomes a real issue. So you have stunting that occurs. Um, but the main factor for why maybe the northern Midwest area, um, you know, you have slower growth is because of optimum growing days and then tie in lack of forage, uh, which could be a habitat issue or it could be a water quality issue or so many things, so many variables. Okay. So on the topic of temperatures, we have a question here. 
Um, how would bass react to extreme temperature swings like we had over Christmas? I'm assuming this person saying they, they're bringing up Tennessee, so I assume they're from Tennessee. Saying yeah. Tennessee went from high 60s to near zero in just 24 hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in Tennessee, you could have uh, you know a laundry list of species. You could have smallmouth, uh, you could have spotted bass, you could have largemouth or Florida bass or their crosses, depending on where we're talking. And each one of those species is going to react a little bit different just because of its its natural characteristics of where it lives within the reservoir. Uh, if we're talking about like a Florida or an F1 largemouth, um, a cold front that, that drops the temperature that great can actually cause those fish to die. Um, Florida bass can't handle those dramatic drops. Um, now, they'd have to be in sh- fairly shallow water with no way to get out of that. The cool thing about reservoirs is they're thermally protected by the atmosphere reservoir contact, right? That very first foot, foot and a half of water, what we're reading on our temperature gauge is not the water temperature. The water temperature happens below that uh, because you don't have that flushing of that water making the atmosphere uh, connection. So it's not going to drop as quickly. So a lot of times what fish do is they move down. They don't move out, they move down um, and get into a thermal refuge. Um, you know, if, if that fish were to travel six to eight foot in depth down, um, it, it would not feel as much of that, that temperature gradient change. And that's what a lot of fish, uh, you know, northern largemouth, smallmouth spotted bass are going to do. They're just going to move vertically down. I think that's a really good token for people to take away from is when temperatures drop like that. A lot of people think oh, I need to just go deeper. When they think deeper, they think oh, I need to go way offshore type of deal. Where mm-hmm. if you're already fishing stuff that has deep water access, chances are those fish just move right to that piece of where, where exactly that, right. that dip would be. Yeah. That's yeah. And if you had a temperature gauge on your boat, like a corded one, right? Like where I can look at depth. Uh, there's a product you can get on Tackle Warehouse called a Fish Hawk HD. It's a depth determined temperature gauge it reads depth every five foot so you just drop it down you pull it back up and then you click through and it says like hey the surface was 43 degrees at five foot it's 48 at 10 foot it's 53 well you start knowing those numbers and then all of a sudden you could target where those fish are most likely going to be because they're going to be at that thermal refuge now getting them to bite is a totally different thing because um fish are not uh, great whenever you have dramatic changes in environmental conditions. They're not suited for that because they're ectothermic, right? Because their body relies on that stagnant temperature, that stagnant water quality. Whenever you have variance in it, um, that can cause them to shut down or you know become difficult to catch. Andy, I think we're buying one. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've actually known about the fishhawk technology for a long time. Salmon trollers and walleye trollers will use it up here on the Great Lakes and a lot of like the bigger finger lakes to help find where that water temperature fluctuates, like the thermocline, right? Like they mm-hmm. want to be right above it because that's where the salmonoid species in the Great Lakes tend to hang out in deep water dwelling walleye. And actually, like a lot of guys that are out there trolling for them will catch smallmouth too because they're just out there chasing bait fish around which is wild to me still. I would just love to different times of year, like on areas that say you frequently fish that are like offshore spots, whether it's 20 foot, 30 foot, et cetera. I would just love to use that and just see 
different times of year, how that fluctuates. Yeah. And it would be cool, I think, when we, us anglers, we talk about lake flipping, like how that changes. I'd love to, I don't know. I think that would be a pretty cool thing to try to track, keep monitor of, because that might be a cool way to add one more factor, right, into helping, like, find out where the heck they're going, trying to track their progress, especially on a lake that you frequent. I think that'd be pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of value in knowing where the thermocline is in the summer, especially if you're in a reservoir that has a, a pretty high thermocline because you can actually hit a gradient at some point where not only has the temperature decreased, uh, you know, to, you know, let's, let's call it like 60, 50 degrees, something in there, but also there's no oxygen down there um, because, because the, there's no change, there's no flipping of that water occurring around the thermocline. So whenever you have no change at all, if that stagnates for long enough and there's enough depth, you get zero oxygen, which means you've now eliminated a lot of water because you know don't fish deeper than than the thermocline. Yeah, I mean that's a, I think that's a thing we've we've talked about a little bit uh, in regards to our summer episodes that we've had on different anglers that talk about especially a new body of water and they're trying to break it down is they go in that graph and they look wait on their two D to mm-hmm. find that thermocline because. Right. And the angler knows the thermal kind will show up uh, and you do that. You set your, your graph from a mapping standpoint to finding where that thermocline is, how much further down it is. And you can set different depth palettes to this is, and then yeah. it shows the lake of what's in play for you. And it's a cool, yeah, it's a cool way to quickly break down water. Your depth finder cannot read temperature at depth. So what you're identifying is actually the density of plankton and where plankton stops in the lake. Um, because That's what we're on 2D then? Uh-huh. Yeah, because the plankton will build up right above the thermocline because it can't go any deeper than that. Because plankton, they're microscopic plants, but a lot of them can rise and fall throughout the day. You know, you if you've ever been in like a creek and you're like, I've seriously been fishing this two hours and it's getting more turbid or clear or something like that, that literally could be happening just because the plankton are rising and falling. Uh, but they'll congregate right at that thermocline. So you're just seeing a reaction of that density of microscopic clean. See, I've always been told that when you see that, they're like, oh, that's a thermocline. Well, technically it is, but you're just looking at plankton, apparently. Uh, well, you don't have any water mixing either. So, yeah. you know, the stuff below it is, um, it's very still. It doesn't have a, a lot of organic matter in it anymore, as in the plankton. You know, you don't you don't have any of that. Because they all rose. <laughs> That's wild! Holy mm. crap! I'm, I'm so intrigued now. We get so deep every time. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like I need like a few minutes after some of the stuff you just dropped the mic out. I'm like, damn, I don't know how to come at, back after that. <laughs> like, well, I mean, we use. Um, we use 2D, we use side imaging, we use forward-facing sonar on, on all of our survey boats. I mean, there's just so much information we can gather from those units. I mean, they're computers. They're, they're perfect for, you know, fisheries managers. Um, you know, I have, a, I have a forward-facing sonar on my electrofishing boat, um, you know, just because it gives you some insight, some things that, you know, maybe uh, I didn't have five years ago. So it's, that technology is definitely worth having. Do you see any of that? Like when you're electrofishing, do you see any disturbance on your forward-facing sonar? What do you mean disturbance? Like you know how you can see pinging from different uh, transducers on 
your screen? Do you see anything like that on when your electric? Yeah. So whenever my electrofisher's off, um, my electrodes are fairly dull. And whenever the electricity starts to pulse through, you can see the frequency. I mean, you can see the amperage or whatever you can see through the electrode. So they light up really bright. So I can see them. So I know when my electricity is on. Um, and then just as I travel through the water, I can see, I can't visualize, right? Like I can't see the electricity moving, but I can see the fish reacting to the electricity as it moves. So I can know if I'm 20 foot out or if I'm eight foot out, like what my range is on my electrofisher. Because I can watch how the fish react to it. So you, you watch them get shocked and just. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can call them, you know, to the to the crew up front. Because a lot of times, uh, you know, you're moving, and so you know, I'm I'm trying to call fish for them. And so with the forward uh, facing sonar, I can say, "Hey, left side," you know, things like that, and keep them engaged in what's about to happen. I can so, also watch a lot of fish from away. So when you're when you're moving, you're talking about you're behind the wheel, right? Yeah. Yeah. So what, do you have it like on a fixed? Uh, yeah, fixed pole, fixed pole um, on scout mode. I use a I use a Lariance on scout mode to where I can see it as a flat plane, uh, not forward directional. I have it on scout. Oh, that's yeah. that's so cool. I'm just picturing you watching a uh, fish come to it and just stop. And just... That's exactly what happens. <laughs> and then I watch your net go in the water and pull it out. <laughs> <laughs> or I want you to ding your net off of it and send it 15 feet away. <laughs> what kind of words happen when uh, somebody misnets an electroshock fish? Andrew, we, we have 150 bass per hour and around 400 bluegill an hour. So nothing happens. We just keep going. <laughs> nothing. <away>. Just keep going. <laughs> We're just like, yep, <laughs> there's another one. <laughs> Fair enough. Oh, that's funny. You know, you electrofish for an hour, and then you collect data for two hours. You know? Yeah. Fair. Fair. Good All right. We have, a, we have a question here from Adam S. Okay. And he says, I know the world record largemouth bass is 21 pounds, three ounces, but with the programs like Share Lunker and improvements in fish care, will we ever see a bass reach 25 to 30 pounds? Okay. Um, Loaded question, but no, no, it's not. So the Sherlunker program is efficient at providing Florida bass to the state of Texas. Um, The majority of the fish that are caught are Florida bass. They're spawned, and now they're they're put into the Sherlunker program. Um, That that's been going on for thirty six years, and it hasn't changed the state record at all. Um, So supplemental stocking of those bass in environments where they already exist is only increasing the number of those bats. It's not creating super exceptional individuals at this point. Um, That doesn't mean that those fish, Sherlunker fish or Florida bass in a new environment wouldn't produce a different result. So I think the answer to the question is um, it's a Florida bass or a Sherlunker offspring that is transported to a new area where they don't have native largemouth bass competition or they have some sort of unique part of that environment that they can excel in. Take California, for example. When Florida bass were moved to California in, I believe, it was the 60s, 
um, you saw 70s, 80s, 90s, early 2000s, a huge spike in these giant fish that were being caught. They were a new species in a new environment. A lot of them had trout as a forage item. And so they were able to grow to these exceptional sizes. So I think right now I wrote, a, I wrote an article a few years ago about how South Africa really has the best hope to, to grow a new world record. You have Florida genetics that were introduced in the 80s there. So it's right at that 30-year time where that's, you know, the majority of their population. You have a cichlid population, um, things like tilapia, that are naive to predation. They they were the top predator, and now they have this, this large mouth of Florida bass consuming them. So there's a lot of recreational opportunity there, and they're cranking out some huge fish, 17, 18-pound fish. Um, you also have... Your northern latitudes, as, as temperature continues to rise, you're going to see the expansion on where Florida's could be stocked. And if you take Florida bass and you put them somewhere, uh, you know, in northern Ontario or something like that, um, in the next several years, you might see something pretty impressive happen. Um, but it would take it would take an experimental biologist saying, I want to. I want to do something completely unique and different, and ruin a native fishery. Uh, I want to. You know what I mean. I want to put this Florida in and, and see what happens. Roll the dice. Uh, that could produce uh, a new world record. Whenever you're talking about managing fish populations, uh, it goes back to what we said earlier. We have to have those optimum growing days in the right environment. The reason lakes like OHIV um, produce so many great fish in these windows and OHIV does this on a cyclic rotation. Um, but the reason that it can do that is because it has drought. So what happens is OHIV drops to basically a riverbed and will sustain that for four or five years. That will allow habitat to grow in. Then whenever that drought ends, the lake refills, you have all this new habitat and you get what's called the new lake effect. The only other way we could raise a trophy, like new world record size fish is to have that Florida genetic in the right environment in 10 consecutive years coming off of a drought into a flood to where forage is optimal and you don't have a lot of competition. So it would, it would be a luck of the draw. Um, to grow a fish in that 20 pound range is gonna take a minimum of 13 years to do. You can grow, you know, you can grow a fish two to three pounds a year if everything's perfect. But once again, Andy, you shorten that lifespan a little bit. So there's kind of this fine line. Um, so, I think the answer to the question is it's going to take a lot of luck. Um, it already takes a lot of luck for a fish to exceed 10 pounds. I mean, if you think about in a single nest, we talked about, you know, spawning quite a bit last time, but in a single nest, you know, you may have 2000 fry and of those 1% are going to survive. Well, what we didn't talk about is of those 2000 fry, you know, we could call it 50% can never reach 10 pounds because they're males. And so if you have that right 1% survive, those are the females, they've got forage genetic, they hit the optimal growing days, sky's the limit. Um, I think that it can happen in private water. Um, there's some things that we do in private water where we stock only female largemouth bass. There's a fish hatchery uh, in Southern Georgia <clears throat> that's working on doing a lot of selective genetics. And they're working with I hope I'm not saying too much, but they're working with uh, a geneticist that's identifying the genes associated with growth. And then they're selecting individuals that have those specific genes. So I think on the private sector side, we will crack that nut of, uh, you know, 20 plus pound fish more consistently in the future. 
you know, and I think you're a decade away from seeing that to where a guy like Bailey's like, Hey man, let's, let's grow a 20 pounder. And we wait 12 years and he's got it. <laughs> that's a uh, Titan bass, right? That's Titan bass. Yep. That's the one that uh, is the private that no one can go fish. It's not like a, a Bienville or a gross Savant where it's private. You can go fish it. It's, I don't believe anyone's allowed to fish that one. We've had some major league fishing pros fish it. I mean, they do some rider stuff there. Invite only. did a riders event there. Yeah. I mean, it's invite only, but they, I mean, there's a hatchery involved in that. And mm-hmm. so like my com- my company purchases fingerlings from them to stock in our clients lakes and um, you know, they're Florida, they're Florida bass. So they of course have great growth rates. Um, so as long as you put together the right environment, you know, like I said, you can grow, I mean, I've grown largemouth. Uh, we've talked about this before. Uh, me and Bailey privately, you know, we've we have a lake where the first year they grew to three pounds by eighteen months. They were just shy of six, and we caught, you know, we caught a double digit fish in four years. I mean, that's possible, but they have shorter lifespans. Diabetes. They, yeah, they're eating so quick. Um, you know, and and that takes a lot of resources. Rainbow trout are an excellent forage. Uh, whenever we're trying to do that, you know, in the winter, uh, in the summer months, threadfin shad, a lot of minnow species. I mean, you've got to just make it to where they're eating constantly. Well, to your to your point about taking a Florida strain north, I think a great place to start is Ohio because their fishing couldn't get much worse. So you're not going to mess anything up. Yeah, it, it's funny. My buddy Mike texted me earlier and he goes, he wanted me to ask you, Steve, why does the state of Ohio choose to stock Sawguy? over bass well i would guess that environmentally that's the species that will survive the best um you know the hard part is our fisheries are aging so you're also talking about systems that number one reservoirs aren't really built to be reservoirs forever they're actually nutrient and sediment traps and so they're slowly filling in and we're now on like the back side of that really cool new lake effect where we're now just sitting here with aging reservoirs. Uh, it's a great time to be a biologist because we have so many problems we can actually work on and fix. It's, you know, <laughs> it's, it's kind of, it's kind of fun, but you know, Andy, to your point, you've got, you know, how most States work is you've got a lake authority that controls the lake. Then you have a parks and wildlife or a DNR that makes recommendations on the fish and how to manage those fish and then implements those recommendations and those two entities have to come together and make those decisions and they use user groups. So there's things like the krill surveys when they come to the boat ramp and ask you, how many fish did you catch? Did you enjoy yourself? Um, what species were you targeting? They're collecting that data because they're making their decisions based on it. Uh, and then, you know, you have, like you had mentioned the fisheries advisory council, you have opportunities like that to where, you know, you can put your input in, but then at, times of laws and regs and things like that, you know, you as a fisherman can join those processes and, and do a public comment. And and making those things known, like we want bass in these environments, or at least understanding why they're not in those environments would be important. Well, speaking of Ohio, we have Ryan Dowell here who's from Ohio, great <laughs> supporter of the show. Uh, he is asking during the wintertime, you know, <clears throat> water temperatures are 40 degrees or less, how often do smallmouth or largemouth need to eat throughout the winter months? Okay, let's do math. Um, the cool thing about any, any uh, fish species that's ectothermic is 
it basically needs to eat its body weight within a year to stay alive. So they don't have to eat. That, that There's nothing that says they have to. They could sit for months and not eat food. Um, they digest food slower in the winter. So, you know, you may have a food item that lives or not lives, is being digested in the stomach for a week at a time. So they could go these prolonged periods because they don't need to eat and they could uh, be consuming one food item that that's, provides them the nutrients for a long time. Also, um, they need to eat five pounds of forage for every pound they weigh to maintain their weight. So they need to eat what they weigh to stay alive, but they only need five pounds to maintain. So if it's a one pound fish, all it has to eat all year long is five pounds of forage. If it wants to gain weight, it has to eat that five pounds plus an additional 10 pounds to gain one pound. So there's all this math that occurs to figure out like, what does a fish actually need to eat uh, to progress it? You can kind of back calculate it. If you know age and growth rates, you can back calculate it and be like, the fish in this system eats at this rate. And that's, that's why they have those growth rates. Um, so there's a lot of fun math we can do to kind of answer Ryan's question. But the truth is they don't have to eat. I like that. That's really intriguing. It is. It's so, also depressing. Very. I have um. I have a new lake effect question for you. So, yeah. you know, Amistad and Falcon down in South Texas, right? They went to super bad drought years. What was it like right around 2010? 11. Yeah, 2010, 2011. So do you see those lakes rebounding back soon to what they were previously? But my real question is, you know, California lakes, all those big ones up north were so low, like hundreds of feet low. And now they're rapidly rising because they're getting like 15 inches of rain every week. Do you see the California fisheries rebounding quickly because of this new lake effect that is going to happen to all these reservoirs that were in severe drought? All right, let's take Amistad first. Um you know, we had a severe drought in 2011. We've had a severe drought in 2022. So we had that 10-year window where we had a little bit of water. I think the drought, the drought really uh, ramped up in 2011, but ended in 2013. So we probably had nine years uh, where we had pretty consistent water. In Texas, we have fairly shallow, sloped reservoirs. So we get mesquite trees, willows, cedars, things like that growing up that would be flooded. If we go to California, we have very steep reservoirs. And so it's harder to grow the habitat that is going to be flooded to create that new lake effect. So some of those California reservoirs are going to rebound really well because they've had that habitat grow in. Others are going to struggle. Um, then you have the forage component. The big, the big reason a lot of reservoirs were producing, you know, the let's call them like 12 pound and larger fish in the 90s in the early 2000s in California is because of the trout stocking programs. The trout stocking programs really were ramping up that forage for those fish. We don't have a lot of those left. Um, there's still some, uh, but there's not a lot. So we would need an effort in forage along with some habitat. Makes sense. Thank you. Yeah. Now, I actually have another one on the Great Lakes, kind of like the New Lake effect as well, right? Like, because, you know, for the last like four or five years, they've been really high and now all of them are kind of going low again, mm -hmm. but they talk about the reason why the lakes are going low is because there's no ice on them, but the years that they were super high, they were actually <laughs> lacking ice. So 
what is the correlation in that? And do you think the new lake effect on the Great Lakes is more important or having a full ice sheet? Is that more important to the Great Lakes? I would, and we're talking about for the smallmouth fishery. I would say the most important thing right now for the Great Lakes is the gobies. <laughs> that that process. That's that's the most important thing. Uh, I would say your water level it comes from watershed. You know, so it's not ice necessarily on the lake itself. It's ice within the watershed uh, because the watershed is providing that water that's going to increase. Uh, you know the the volume. So I think that's your biggest key, Andy. Is you've got to have the rain or the ice and snowpack in in the watershed and you know snow doesn't have as much water per volume as rain or ice would um, ice is the most dense so you would have the most uh water per volume makes sense i have one more question and then i see one more viewer question we can get to but if people have anything else fire away but we won't keep you too much longer steve we Definitely appreciate you taking the time to uh, let us fire away on oh, of course, brother. a bunch yeah. of questions here. Um, one of the things I've seen, and I, I don't think we got to talk about this on the first show we had you on, uh, but a lot of people talk about it here. People, and when they see people boat flipping bass, they complain about it in comments type of deal. Uh, but what, what is the impact, if any, on people boat flipping bass onto carpet? Okay. Um, so fish, scaled fish, their first line of protection from bacteria and parasites are the scales. The scales are protected by a slime coat. The fish produces that slime coat and that creates a mucus layer between the fish and the scales. The scales can be damaged, they can be lost, but as long as you have slime coat, uh, then, then that can help prevent parasites and bacteria from entering the fish. So whenever you boat flip a fish, it's going to have an impact, a direct impact on an abrasive hard surface that's going to remove slime. It's also going to have a potential for bacterial transfer. Now, if you boat fish, boat flip a fish, it hits the carpet, it loses the slime, you unhook it, you put it back in the water, it swims off, it's this time of year, you're going to have very low bacterial introduction because it's not in the environment. Bacteria increase with temperature. Now, metabolism is worse this time of year. So for some reason, you touched it with your hands and you transferred human bacteria onto that fish in that area where that slime had been removed. You now have given that bacteria a vector and a poor immune system. So depending on how that whole process worked, um, this time of year, it may be okay. It may be a little detrimental. Now in the summer, it's always detrimental. Uh, if you boat flip a fish, you remove slime, and you put it back in the environment, due to the thermoclines, uh, water chemistry, temperature, bacteria that's in the environment, you're definitely going to have some sort of bacteria that are going to attach to the side of the fish. And you'll see that in red coloration, maybe outlined in the scales, or even in blotches. Um, if that persists and that fish cannot you know, regrow the scales or, or reintroduce that slime coat, does not have the immune system to recover, um, it, it could be a fatal injury. It's not like, you know, you're rupturing anything within the fish, most likely you're not having that big of an impact, but just that removal of slime coat is kind of the issue. Now, some things you could do, right? Um, if the fish hits, hits the deck, it hits the deck. If you're always touching the fish with wet hands instead of dry hands, that, that really helps. If you have gloves on, that really helps. 
uh, avoid like sunscreens and insecticides on your hands. Those things really help uh, because your hands are actually the vector to make these things happen. That's good. Yeah, I I remember hearing about sunscreen and different things along those lines. But like people say, when you get to the lake, always just put your hands in the lake or something along those lines, just to kind of when you are handling fish in general. Um, Andy, you got anything before we cap it off with some viewer questions? Ah, hit them up with the viewer questions. Those are fun. All right, we have one from Ash Lynch asking if you, Steve, have done a study on forage. And if so, how much of the bass population eat the same bait fish or eat whatever they can find, a.k.a. opportunistic? Yeah, we do a lot of uh, forage you know, studies, especially in private water, because um, we want to know what's available in the environment and what are they actually utilizing. And what you find is um, bass are fairly selective on size, not necessarily that the biggest fish within the environment eat the biggest prey that that's not always true but they're selective on the size of forage that they would like to consume something that um you know is reasonable size to provide them the nutritional value they need uh without a lot of effort and effort kind of kind of is what this whole conversation is going to boil down to it they're going to eat what is most available in the environment um you know so if thread fringe out are most available and it matches with the habitat that's what they're going to eat um they're going to eat medium-sized bluegill, like three to five-inch bluegill, because that's a you know if it's most available in the environment, it's most nutritious. Uh, there's been a lot of studies that say like food preference studies, where they literally will put a largemouth in a tank and they will drop like a crawfish and a bluegill and see which one the bass eats, and they'll do that most often. Um, you see that bass consume crawfish at a much higher rate than almost any other forage fish uh, or you know type of forage. The problem is nutritionally, they're not that valuable. So for whatever reason, throughout you know the evolution of that fish, it has determined crawfish have to go, have to be eaten. So it's probably an aggression rather than you know something about hunger. Um, but we do these studies all the time. And, and I'll tell you, it's Ash, it's environmental. And it, it's what is in the environment. And then what is that preferred size class of that forage within the environment? I'll also tell you that as fish age in an environment, they become conditioned by that environment. So if something changes, um, let's say for whatever reason, gobies were introduced, right? It will take them time to learn that goby process. They have to increase into an abundance where they're just so much easier to capture than anything else, which conversely means if I take a bass from an environment that's been conditioned and it's grown its entire life and I move it to a new environment, it will try to replicate the old environment. So if it was eating bluegill in front of a dog, in 20 foot of water, it's gonna go look until it can find a dock that's similar in 20 foot of water and consume bluegill. And it will starve if it can't find that because they don't adapt very quickly. Hmm. So that's my warning on moving fish, right? That's wild. Yeah. Uh, I did uh, put your website down in the comments for anybody that awesome. wants to study the, or look at the text pro lake management deal that you run over there um, yep. as well as after the show um, I have to update links and such all your social media and your website and everything will be there for everybody to check out. I highly encourage you guys to do so uh, a lot of great, great knowledge over there on your page that you're posting out on your content, but also on the website too. Um, we have, we're going to do one or two more questions and then uh, okay. we'll ask you one fun question again and we'll, we'll wrap things up here. 
Uh, we have a question from Anthony Geis asking how important is selective harvest with small bass as well as with pickerel? Yeah, no, selective harvest is huge. Um, you know, on the private sector side, you have a carrying capacity in, in every fishery, right? And that carrying capacity is dictated uh, basically forage abundance and then the size of the bass. And so the more bass you have, the quicker they use that carrying capacity up. And so you just have a lot of little ones. Every once in a while, you'll have one escape that, that's a larger size fish. So to improve your, your size class of fish, you must harvest small fish so that there's more resources available to grow into a larger size. The old adage of I'll release it with time, it's going to grow bigger is absolutely not true. As I stated earlier, the fish only have to eat their body weight in a year to stay alive, five pounds of forage to maintain. They can literally eat just the maintenance diet their entire lives. That means a 10-inch fish that's caught wherever could be a 10-year-old fish if the forage wasn't available to make it grow. You look at states like Oklahoma that are you know, creating less restrictive harvest regulations. They're asking you to pull out more fish under 14 inches because we've identified that catch and release is awesome for tournament fishing, but what it's leading us to is a non-consumptive population of anglers. Anglers that just are not harvesting fish. By not harvesting fish, we're leaving too many in the environment and they're smaller fish. So, you know, most state agencies are now asking you to pull out some of those smaller fish. You definitely see it in on, you know, like North Carolina on the Eastern coast when we're talking about Alabama bass and how they've transitioned those entire fisheries, the Alabama bass introduction has transitioned those fisheries to be stunted bass populations, less abundant largemouth, those kind of things. So uh, harvest is super important and it's always the smaller bass that need to come out. Yeah, I think that harvesting of bass is like a, what would you call it, Andy? Like a social, it's definitely a societal thing. Like It's like a social sin, like a society sin to harvest bass in the bass community. Like, I totally agree that, like, I've heard from many people, yourself included, people that are way more knowledgeable on the stuff than I am, that it's very important to keep (laughs) small bass. It's like, it's like trying to... uh, it's for whatever people would keep bass, like all oh, murderer, and they, they kind of joke about it. It's not like, obviously not a bad thing to keep bass, right. but I feel you like know, that's Bailey, one of the big reasons why some people don't, I think, if that makes sense. What, what you have to think about is your bass population is like a pizza slice with the majority of fish being where the crust is, and those are your small fish. And as you increase to the tapered end of that pizza slice, those are the larger fish. So your fishery naturally supports very few individuals at a trophy size. To increase the number of trophy size fish, you would, if you increase the backside of it, uh, of the pizza, you're never going to get more trophy size. You got to decrease the backside to flatten that curve, and then you can have more fish move to the, to the trophy side. So basically you want to take your pizza slice and cut it into quarters. That's right. Because now you have more of those big fish. Like yeah, that. and, uh, you know, it's it's one of those things, you know, before, let's say, 95, this wasn't a topic, you know, before 95, people were still consuming fish. Uh, and there's certain fish populations, let's say crappie, um, crappie are consumed widely by anglers uh, to the point that now crappie anglers are in guides are starting to restrict their own harvest because they're harvesting so many crappie and they want that fishery to be sustainable. 
but we have no crappie stocking programs in the United States because we don't need them uh, because their populations are pretty well managed, even though crappie are periodic spawners to where you may have two or three year classes that don't show up because environmental conditions weren't right for the crappie. But then once they do spawn, they just have a ton of litter, basically. So they're That's able exactly to right. repopulate. But largemouth bass do as well. Um, yeah. Smallmouth bass do as well. They, you know, a largemouth has about 2,500 eggs. The window is like 2,000 to 4,000, but about 2,500 eggs per pound of body weight. So you start thinking about some of these share lunkers that are 13-pound fish and, and the number of offspring they're having. Uh, it, it's pretty remarkable. <laughs> yeah, that's insane. All right. Well, I think we've we've run through our questions here. Steve, once again, thank you so much for taking the time and dropping knowledge on all of us. I think there were of several course. times throughout this show that I didn't know how to follow up with the with the the, the bomb my show. Brain fog. Yeah, I'm just kidding there. I'm like trying to register everything, but it's it, seriously. It, I learned so much every time talking, whether it's podcast or not. Uh, and I truly appreciate every conversation, and uh, we look forward to having you on here further. Our, uh, our last question for you on the night, getting away from fishing. I'm assuming being a Texas boy, uh, you like football. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you what two teams are going to be in the Super Bowl, who's going to win, and what's the score going to be? Bailey, you've assumed wrong, my brother. No. <laughs> you, would have, you would have to tell me who's in the playoffs. Oh, and, no. Yeah, I don't, I don't watch football. Uh, I don't okay. really watch any sports. So <clears throat> um, let's say – Wait, here's what we could do. Andy and I can talk about that when we let you go okay. here. But Perfect. if you were not a fisheries biologist, what career okay. path would you have taken? Um, I would have been a detective. Detective? Like a, Or maybe even like a PI, like with a cool jacket, you know? <laughs> yeah, with like a flashlight uh, and a jacket. Ray, Ray <laughs> Like going to investigate <laughs> and stuff. I mean, because that's um, – that's all I do right now. I investigate. I come up with um, all the clues, and then I put together the case of how do we grow bigger fish. Sounds so like would you would have been thing. in forensics. No, no, no. Yeah. I would have been no. like, I would have been like dusting for fingerprints, doing it old school. Yeah. Steve, you need um, to you need to change your title, your job title. It's, okay. uh, it's it's Steve Barton, Bass Detective. Oh, that would be classic. Yeah, that'd be that'd be a good uh, that'd be a good yeah. handle. So I mean, saying. it's better than Captain Pee Pants, right? Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, it's awesome. <laughs> I, yes. I love that. Yes, much better. Yes. You should show up to Lakes in Texas, like a long black trench coat, right? like dark uh, black Ray-Bans, just fast detective. Like a black light yeah. looking for bacteria in the live wells. <laughs> Have I'm, Gary walking with you with a boom box playing like the, the bad boys, bad boys. I'm calling... I'm calling Jim Wilburn and Kathy Finnell tomorrow. I need a new title change. At That's right. I love it. Yeah. This is Major League Fishing's past detective, Steve Martin. Yeah. I'm sure it's good. Yeah. I love that. Let's look. Dude, for real, appreciate you and always appreciate your time. And uh, for real, about any, if there's anything I can do to help in Florida, I'm sure we'll talk more offline here. Yep. Uh, Absolutely. I Fully willing, and then if not, dude, we'll see you. Uh, we'll see you at Redcrest. Okay, brother. Y'all have a good one, Andy. Heal up, buddy. We'll get there. I'll probably Keep go. Those hands intact in a couple days. So <laughs> right, appreciate good. it, Steve. We'll talk to you. Yeah, have a good one. See you guys. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Oh man, always good having Steve on. Yeah. Appreciate everybody that's been joining in. The questions were really good tonight. 
I think you and I need to finish off this football question. Adam Adam S was the one that offered that idea of talking about Super Bowl with Steve. And I thought in Texas, you're supposed to just follow football by birth. But we'll get we'll give Steve a harder time about that later. But what what's your take? We we got games coming up this weekend that are gonna be very entertaining to watch. And obviously you're a Bills fan, I'm an Eagles fan. Yeah, so we have our biases. What, what what do I really want to see a Super Bowl? I think a great Super Bowl would be Buffalo Philly, but I don't think the infrastructure in this country could handle a Bills Philly Super Bowl because if either team lost or won, both cities may burn to the ground at the same time simultaneously. Um, I don't know. I find playoffs interesting because literally any game can happen and a team could lose. Like Jaguars, the Jaguars coming back from an insane deficit to win um, a couple of years ago, right? Like, the Pats came back on the Jaguars when they were up big on the conference championship game. Um, yeah, so if we go, if we break down this round to a nutshell, like I see Philly and San Fran advancing. I am praying that the Bills can beat Cincinnati. And I would like the Bills to play Jacksonville. I'd like Jacksonville to upset the Chiefs because I want to go to the AFC championship game in Buffalo against the Jags. Dude, it, it, I feel like so people look at it, right? And this, this is our time to start talking football, okay? We, we gave you guys an hour and 15 minutes of fishing. We're going to talk a little bit of football. Andy and I in text, we talk a little bit of fishing. We talk a lot of sports. Yes. Um, but dude, the Chiefs this year had, if you look at their schedule, they had so many very, 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 very close games to losing to very, very bad teams. Yeah. There's a chance that the Jaguars could smack them. Thank you. I, yeah. I really I really think the Jags have a shot. I think pe- especially if they play it's like the they playoffs. In half. The Bengals almost lost to the Ravens with Tyler Huntley. Like the Bills almost lost to the Dolphins because we had three turnovers and gave them insane field position. Literally – Anything can happen in the playoffs. You don't know what's going to happen until it's over, in my opinion. Yeah. yeah Doug Peterson's incredible. So, Doug Peterson versus, uh, oh my gosh, I'm a horrible Eagles fan. Blanking Andy Reid. Andy Reid. Good gosh. Yeah. Uh, that's going to be a great coach game. Yeah. Coach versus and coach. What you may forget is Doug Peterson was Andy Reid's offensive coordinator at Kansas City, and they had like hiring gate with Philly to bring him from Kansas City to Philly. So, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, dude, I'm excited. I, as an Eagles fan, my, you know, fiance, you are all diehard Bill fans, will love to watch an Eagles Bill Super Bowl. I probably would be single afterwards because I would get dumped, I think, regardless of the uh, outcome. But uh, no, I, I think realistically, looking at it, I love my Eagles team right now. But the way San Fran is playing. Yeah, they terrify me. It is scary. Yeah. Scary. Debo's look, back. He's healthy. With Mr. Irrelevant, man. Like, whoo, Brock Purdy. But, there's, dude, there's got to – I mean, maybe he's the new coming of a Tom Brady. You know, Tom Brady faces out this year. Brock Purdy's it. I'm not going to call him Tom Brady. I'm saying to an essence of like he comes in out of nowhere and he becomes this really dominant, consistent quarterback. But also it's like I'm thinking this kid's new. This is all new to him. Like he's going to flunk at some point. He's got to crumble. Well, 
it's not just him. Kyle Shanahan has a history of losing the biggest game. So they might get there, but them getting there, they'll probably lose. So whoever they play. I think if they're playing like they have this whole year, the Eagles defensive line could be the one component to crumble Purdy because they the Eagles defensive line is easily the most scariest in the entire NFL. It is because from just amount of sacks and the, when you look at the pure size of the guys they have between a Dominic and Sue being the fourth best one on the line, that's that's really scary. But I could see if the way I look at it from a realistic standpoint, I'm not gonna. Are we calling winners here? Mm, it's too hard to call winners because we're gonna be biased. We're gonna well, be biased. I see. I think you'd be surprised by my take. I more don't want to jinx the other one. Yeah, I feel that. For the sake of the city. <laughs> yeah. Uh... Okay. We won't call winners. We'll call winners. Oh, man. I hate this because I'm so superstitious. <laughs> okay. Here we go. We're going to do it. You, you don't have to do it. I'm going to do it. And I'll knock on wood afterwards. We'll trust the process. Trust the process. Okay, Sean McDermott. <laughs> right. Uh, I'm going Bills, 35. San Fran, 27. That'd be an exciting, exciting Super Bowl. I will knock so, on wood. Knock on wood. Like at some point, I feel like San Fran is going to lose because they usually lose in a game that they have the upper hand in. Like losing to, like, I think last year in the playoffs, they made it to the NFC Conference Championship against uh, the Rams. And if you look at the schedule last year, they beat them both times in the regular season and then lost them in the NFC championship game. So this is where I'm talking about Kyle Shanahan. He can get there. It's just, will they make it through the championship game and how will they play in the Super Bowl? Like everyone forgets Matt Ryan's head coach. Well, offensive coordinator was Kyle Shanahan and they took the foot off the gas and lost to the Pats in the Super Bowl in overtime. So, like, he just has a history of losing really big games. And, I mean, if you think about it, the Bills do too. So, like, in the playoffs, we've lost the last few years to the Chiefs. That's why I don't want to play the Chiefs. Yeah, I think we'll kind of lost, though. Yeah. Well, God, just uh, insane, epic defensive meltdown. That was the NFL poor coaching for the Bills. That's what that poor, was. Poor coaching decisions, and Fact. we'll leave it at that. But, I mean – it's literally the playoffs are a week by week thing. Do I want the Bills to make it? Yes. Do I think they can? Yes. If they play 98% of what they're capable of on offense, I think they can beat any defense in the league because they're literally probably the scariest offensive team in the league. Look at, they threw the ball 12 times against the Dolphins, more than 45 yards downfield and completed half of them. Like Josh Allen was on the verge in that Dolphins game of having 500 plus yards and five touchdowns and zero picks. Cole Beasley doesn't let that one fly off his chest. It's yeah, probably that was just defense, though. That wasn't really Beasley. Yeah, fault. and John Brown ran the wrong route. Yeah, that's that too. So but on a 65 yard pass, put super glue on Josh Allen's gloves because he can't control the damn ball. Oh. He throws the ball out of his hands three times a game. It seems like. But I, I could see, dude, when they're firing and they're not making mistakes, they are the best team in football right now. If if they're firing all cylinders and the Eagles are firing on all cylinders, that would be an explosive game. Yeah, I just have to say, if that's the, if that's the case, if 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 you have the Eagles Bills Super Bowl and I, I, each team's playing 
110%. I have to put the favor in Eagles just from pure defense. The secondary and the line for the Eagles are way, in my opinion, way better than the Bills' defense. Oh, but here's my my theory on that. Great offenses will always beat a a great defense. It's been proven time and time and time over again. But I'm I'm saying from the standpoint of like when you go punch for punch, I think the Eagles are going to make more stops than the Bills make stops. That makes sense. We have three guys in the top ten. From secondary with from interceptions, we got Gardner Johnson back, who had six interceptions. He's still, I think he's tied for second now, and he missed half the season. Like I think it's, I don't know. I, I, I regardless, of what I'm trying to say is that would be a really, really good game. Oh, I agree. I agree completely. I still want to be like a crappy game, like Bengals playing like shit in the Super Bowl against a Dallas Cowboys. I mean, I hate the Cowboys in general, but like still. Yeah, I don't, I, want to see, I don't see Dallas getting out of San Fran alive. Like, I feel like that's going to be like a 41 to 17 game on Saturday night, is it? That they play, I think. Yeah, people or, are like talking about how good they looked against Tampa. And dude, Tampa just like. They're not good. They didn't deserve terrible. to be in the playoffs. They didn't deserve to be there. They, they no. were horrible. If, if Carolina makes the playoffs out of the NFC South and wins that division, they beat the Cowboys. In my personal opinion, Chiefs Cowboys is the worst case. Oh, Cowboys aren't that. making it. I'm like, I, I can guarantee that, that. Yeah, but that we is not we need to make sure yep. at all costs that the Cowboys don't make it. Yeah, you know, it would be worse probably is like Jacksonville Cowboys Super Bowl, but Trevor Lawrence, they can't though. Oh, wait, no, they can't. Never mind. Yeah, they can. It's AFC, NFC, and yeah. Dallas. Here's my issue with Dallas is they'll get up on a team fast and then Dak will throw four interceptions for no reason. And then they will blow the game like they did to Jacksonville like three weeks ago. Like the Cowboys are on the verge. They play an incredible game against a subpar team in the playoffs. And now they're going to face a real team and they're about to get their teeth kicked in. And probably Mike McCarthy gets fired. Because Jerry Jones will be pissed about them getting their teeth kicked in. in Dude, I don't think the Cowboys are going to win another Super Bowl until Jerry Jones is gone. Agreed. I think Mike McCarthy is great for that team. Okay, give Mike McCarthy a real quarterback. I am anti-Dak. I I think Dak is a good dude, but, like, he ain't it, dude. He is not. Dak was much better with Garrett. Well, I forgot his name. That the last head coach before McCarthy. Yeah, I know. Jack was much better with Garrett than he is with McCarthy. Aaron Rodgers was amazing with McCarthy until they fired McCarthy. Those are statistically some of Aaron Rodgers' worst years. Is the last two or three years with Mike McCarthy at the helm. He's, yeah, he's not that great of a coach. I don't think. And his time management skills are abysmal. If like. Look at the Dallas game last year where they called a QB sneak up the middle with like 15 seconds left with no timeouts. Yep. Like, idiots. You, you can't do that to win a Super Bowl. Like, yeah, it's going to be interesting. It, I, I'm excited for it. I'm excited yeah. how it's going to shake out. Yeah, I, I, I just get, hope the teams are full fledged, like each team playing. Like, I just hope the teams don't play like crap, except for the Cowboys. I just want to be yeah. fun games. 
Yeah, I think this weekend has the possibility of a blowout in the San Fran-Dallas game. I think the Philly and Giants game could be interesting just because Dable knows how to coach a quarterback. So scary, dude, from a coach. I think he's the probably the most notable name from a coach. I think he's coach of the year by far. Yeah, he might be. He made Danny Dimes from a bust to a top eight quarterback probably in the league. He's thrown over 300 yards a game, and he hasn't thrown an interception in like five weeks. Like, mm-hmm. And if you think about who, when was Josh Allen better when Brian Dable was the offensive coordinator? Of Buffalo? I remember the Bills were fun to watch when Dable was, th- was yeah. behind the hill? Yeah, I don't know. It's very interesting. It's, it's very it's, interesting. I'll be honest. Like the Bills' offense is stale. Yeah, it's the same. It's there's four route concepts. I literally called it when we're at the playoff game. I go, all right, here we go. It's third and seven. They're gonna run one guy deep, and the other three are gonna run hitch routes, like eight yard hitch routes. And literally, you saw Gabe Davis streaking up the side, and everybody <laughs> stopped and came back. I'm like, oh, there it is. At least Gabe Davis finally caught the damn ball. Oh God, let's not <laughs> yeah. talk about that. Him and McKenzie are. are abysmal Ugh. which is yeah. completely 180 from last year no Gabe Davis has always had drop issues just he didn't have he made the... much bigger plays last year he because... torched the Chiefs by himself in the playoffs yes he did but there's a reason why he torched the Chiefs by himself and now he's back on the team <laughs> Cole Beasley running his option routes in the middle and pulling two defenders and Gabe would run wide over wide open over the top of him fair if... If you go back and watch all four of those touchdowns, literally Gate Cole Beasley was on the same side running an option route, and he would suck the safety in at him, and Gabe would be wide open. They're a much better passing offense, I noticed, when Shakir's on the field. Yes, I agree. Just, I like that guy. I like him a lot. He's a stud. Um, okay, we can go on this forever, but really quick before we sign off here tonight, uh, we're gonna. I'm going to ask you one more thing football-wise. If I break my hand on my desk. This uh, comment right here. Has yep. me so upset. Isaiah Hodgins. He's they been, drafted he's him for the last five weeks. Yeah, he's insane. He they drafted him literally the round or two after Gabe Davis in the same year, but he had injury problems, so he never made the roster. And that training camp before he got hurt, he was the clear cut number two receiver on the Bills roster because of his playmaking ability in the offseason. And then he just kept getting hurt and then you know, you're going to stick with the guys you know at that point. So kind of sucks. But now he's in New York crushing it with Brian Dable because Brian Dable knew what he was. So. Yep. Well, really fast for folks, if you guys, like I mentioned in the intro, um, well, if you weren't here for the intro, if you guys want any Sears Angler merch that I'm wrapping right now, uh, links down below. If you guys want to check any out, get any for yourself, any Lure Lab, Business the Bass Boat, Sears Angler merch. But uh, Andy, two more questions, then we're going to wrap things up. One, do you think Tom Brady's going to retire? I think Tom Brady is going to wait until like July to figure out where he's going to go. And it's tough to say because of the family stuff he has going on in the background. He already has a mega deal worked out with Fox to be a broadcaster when that time comes. But I also wonder if he wouldn't even want to go to the broadcast booth. I can almost see Tom Brady switching and going right into coach mode. Like he'd be one of those guys that you would never expect to become like a QB coach, but he did it for so long that I feel like he would be effective at it. 
So, no, I don't see Tom Brady going to the Raiders. I think, if anything, you might see him go back to New England and try to go to the Super Bowl one last time with Bill Belichick. Because they were receivers at New England to do it. The last time they won a Super Bowl, they didn't have the receivers. They had had, uh, Julian Edelman and Rob Gronkowski, who was hurt with a bad back. Just Julian Edelman could get open. He was like a Cole Beasley, but better. Shifting, he was always open five to ten yards down the field because he ran option routes. Yeah, I don't think he's done either. I think he's got one more year. But I'll tell you what, he he might have been like the 18th or 19th best quarterback in the league this year. And he did say when he when his efficiency levels drops to a point where he feels like he's not on a top tier, that he would retire. And I'm gonna say on that. I wouldn't be surprised if we lose Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers this offseason. Yeah, I think if Aaron Rodgers comes back, the way he went out walking down that hall with Randall Cobb was kind of like to hey, I'm done. Yeah. Ish to me. I don't that wasn't a hey, we're gonna be back. That was a hey, let's walk down memory lane type of deal before yeah. we're, we walk out of this building. I think if he does come back, I don't think he'll be a Packer. Well, that, it's tough to say because the Packers can't cut him or trade him because it's like a hundred and twelve million dollar. It's almost like a um, oh, I'm forgetting his name because now he's irrelevant. Now that he's in Denver, um, Russell Wilson. <laughs> like, um, I think Aaron Rodgers' cap hit if they trade him is like ninety million next year against the Green Bay Packers cap. Hmm. So, it's yeah. um, wild. Yeah. Football, man. Yeah. It's America run contracts. <laughs> yeah. Well, folks, appreciate you all. Uh, we have some cool episodes coming up for this week. We have uh, Louis Minetti, who's coming on uh, for Friday's episode. Um, and after next week's business from the Bass Boat, which, by the way, for folks, if you are, uh, if you like the business from the Bass Boat episodes, those have now moved to their own MP3 platform. And uh, Bishop of the Basketball will stay on our YouTube channel here, uh, especially if you're watching this. But if you want to listen to the Bishop of the Basketball episodes, which they had a really good one this past week with the CEO of Wired to Fish, Todd Hamill, uh, the link's down below. Same thing, or on app, if you're on Apple Podcasts, listen to us now or Spotify or whichever platform, you could search Business from the Basketball and listen to all those clips. There's some really, really good ones down there, especially if you're, if you like any business advice or anything, how to maneuver the industry, if you fish tournaments and you want to be better with your money, that sort of thing, it's a great show. Um, I highly encourage you guys to either keep listening to it or if you haven't listened to it yet, give it a shot. Uh, again, links are down below uh, if you'd like to go check it out. Um, but next week we have, for Tuesday Night Live, we have Alex Weatherell, Bassmaster Elite Series rookie and fellow Northeasterner, coming on the show. And then... Next Thursday, uh, sorry, not, we're filming next Thursday. Next Friday's episode uh, is Luke Palmer. Luke Palmer is coming back on to before the Elite Series season, as well as we're going to have on uh, Steve Owens, who is the new tournament director for Bassmaster Kayak Series. Talk about updated schedule and updated rules for next year. So it'll be Luke first and then Steve afterwards. Um, but a lot of really good shows coming up. We have a whole another couple of weeks after that that we have scheduled. I am bound for Florida in on february 4th as well probably same time that uh, our guest tonight steve is headed down there and i'm spending the whole dang month in florida so i'll be doing the podcast 
for what is the fiance going to kill you for being in Florida for a month, or is she coming with you? She was originally going to come with. She was going to spend a whole week down there, uh, but she is studying uh, rigorously for her boards exam to be complete as a PT. So they make you go through seven years of school, three years uh, full of clinicals, forcing you not to get paid just to tell you you have to pay $600 for an exam. Uh, after saying that the seven years doesn't allow you to be a PT yet, you got to take some crazy exam afterwards. Uh, and then she'll officially be a PT. But yeah, yeah, money, money. That's right. But uh, yeah, all in February, I'll be with palm trees as my backdrop for the podcast. Jealous. I will be here in cold, balmy New York. I will be fishing as much as possible. As soon as I check off work, I'll go sneak in a couple hours after dinner, for, you know, fishing down there and fishing on the cool. weekend. So always animals. call Steve. He, he'll be a short drive away to go hop on the boat. I'll be bothering both Steve. Steve's that we had on tonight and Steve Mui, our buddy that's in about 45 minutes from my parents. So Nice. But yeah. Whole bunch of fun coming through the episodes, and we're going to try to put out some fishing content on the YouTube channel this year, so look forward to that. Uh, but as always, folks, appreciate y'all, and we'll see you on Friday. Well, that was an awesome show. Hope you guys enjoyed it. If you can and your app allows it, please leave us a rating and review. It really helps us get seen more, which allows us to access more time and more variables to be able to bring to the show to make it better for you guys. So hope you enjoyed it. And if you did and you liked some of the things we talked about in this episode and want to check out our show partners, all of that is in every single show description. You can click down there. It's got all of our discount codes, all of our links to our show partners where you guys can go and support the people that support this show and help us make this show happen. And of course, this show does not happen without you guys. You guys know we appreciate you. You're the Sears Sanger fam. You're the reason we're here. Appreciate y'all, and we'll see y'all on the next one.